Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and open to the book of Exodus, chapter 18. Exodus, chapter 18. In a moment, we will read the whole chapter. I have never seen the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset. I have never seen the beauty of my wife's face or the beauty of my children's faces apart from the effects of sin. We live in a world that is shrouded in brokenness, fallenness, and sin. So whatever I've seen that's been beautiful (laughs) has not been Complete, whole, full beauty. But one day, one day, there will be such a beauty to behold when we behold our Savior. Unlike anything we've ever seen before. What a hope. What a hope. And so while we see beautiful things, while we see our beautiful loved ones, while we see the beautiful creation that God has given to us, we ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) You stand with me. As we read God's word out of reverence and respect for his word, Exodus 18, 1 through 27 After I finish the chapter, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God, because we are truly thankful for this precious gift he's given to us. Hear the word of the Lord. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, or and, he, and when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God 
And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the peoples, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart. He went to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. may be seated. All good things must come to an end. Maybe you've said that before. Maybe you've heard someone say that before. We say it with a sense of disappointment. We don't want good things to come to an end. We want things to last, good things to last. We want them to go on. We want them to endure. I don't know, though, if I've ever heard anyone say, all bad things must come to an end. Wouldn't that be a more optimistic statement? A looking forward to something better? Take heart. All of the bad things that you are experiencing aren't going to last. They will come to an end. Yet perhaps we never say this because sometimes it feels like the darkness will not end. Sometimes it feels like the pain will never go away. It appears that the cycle of hardship or trials or sin that we know and experience might never be broken. Maybe it shows that the human heart, our hearts, are more prone to pessimism. If you think today is bad, don't worry, tomorrow will probably be worse. You ever think that way? Right here we have something that speaks into our hearts and to our souls. We long for something that lasts. 
We want something that is going to endure. We want this thing to be good. We want it to bring blessing to our souls. We want it it to cause us to flourish and to grow. We want it to bring comfort, joy, and peace to our souls. We want the good to endure, and we want all that is bad and evil and wicked and painful and heart-wrenching and soul-crushing to come to a final and full end. We long for winter to become spring. Why? Why do we want what is good to last and to endure? Because we often link our lives, our existence, our ability to endure to either the good or the bad that we are experiencing. If we are experiencing something good, what do we say? I can do this. I got this. I can go on. I feel good. I can endure. No problem. But when we're experiencing the bad, what do we say? How am I going to go on? How am I going to make it through all of this? How in the world am I going to be able to endure? Where might you be on that spectrum this morning? And what is it that's going to stop you from sliding up and down and back and forth on that scale? What is it that's going to stop that tug of war that is in your heart? What is it that's going, what is it that's going to make it so that you are able to endure? Endure life both in the good times and in the bad times. Endure both the ups and the downs. Endure the mountaintops of joy and ecstasy and the valleys of despair, defeat, and even death. The Israelites had gone through many trials. They grumbled. They were questioning if it was worth it. They were thinking to themselves, maybe we should just turn back. Or better yet, maybe we shouldn't even have left Egypt at all. Will they endure? Will we endure? And if we're going to endure, don't we need something that lasts? Something that never fails? Something that never expires? Something that is unshakable, unbreakable, unconquerable, and eternal? In order to endure, you require and I require God's grace. It's not an easy lesson to learn, but if our endurance is not completely dependent upon God's grace, we will not endure. And it takes a Midianite priest, the father-in-law of Moses, a man named Jethro, someone we would not expect to teach us this lesson. Exodus 18 serves as a transitional chapter in the book of Exodus. It is a bridge between the first section of Israel being delivered by God, of the people of Israel being brought out of Egypt, of them walking through the Red Sea on dry ground and beginning their journey through the wilderness, to this next major section of the book where the Israelites are called to be devoted to God. As they're there, Moses receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The Lord will make a covenant with His people. We can even see this in the chapters. We look at chapter 18. The first 12 verses focus on the deliverance, while verses 13 through 27 focus on the working out of the law. And while it might not seem like it at first, chapter 18 of Exodus has some climactic elements to the whole book of Exodus. 
and it prepares us for the next major event at Mount Sinai where we are going to encounter the presence of the living God. How is it that we've gotten this far in the book? And how is it that we will get all the way to the end? Only by God's grace. Such is what we need for the whole Christian life. It's no different in the book of Exodus as it is for our lives now. What do we need? We need God's grace. And if we know God's grace, it enables us to endure. So what does this look like in our lives? How do we know if we are enduring by God's grace or simply propping ourselves up with that which will not last and that which was never meant to hold us up? How do we know if we will be able to endure by God's grace? Well, taking those two sections, the first 12 verses and then verses 13 to 27, first, how we will endure, and then one way we will not endure. And this morning, we'll just cover number one. They're in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, you can find this outline. Number one, we will endure as we respond to what the Lord has done. We will endure as we respond to what the Lord has done. Has done. We cannot read chapter 18 in isolation. We have to consider that which we have already read. And the event immediately preceding chapter 18 helps us understand chapter 18. At the end of chapter 17, we, we read about the Amalekites. They were attacking Israel. Here is another nation, another people group, Gentiles who are opposed to God who are against his redemptive purposes and so are God's enemies and so attack his people. Yes, the nations will rage against the Lord. They will attack, they will fight, they will instigate. But that is not the whole story. For now we have a contrast to that event. Chapter 18 acts as a foil to chapter 17. Here now we have this non-Israelite, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, a Gentile who acts differently than the Amalekites. And 13 times in this chapter, as we read it, you heard it repeated over and over again, Moses' father-in-law, Moses' father-in-law, father-in-law, father-in-law. So here we cannot escape the view that Jethro was Moses' father-in-law, and that this relationship was not based on the fact that they were of the same ethnicity. We are reminded that this relationship is not built upon bloodline. Moses had married a Midianite woman named Zipporah, and so we cannot get past the fact that Jethro was a Gentile. Word now, though, had spread to Jethro of what the Lord had done for Moses and for the people of Israel. And Jethro was going to bring back Moses' wife and sons to him. They had not been with Moses while Moses brought the people out of Israel or out of Egypt. For Moses, it said, had sent them away. We don't know exactly why he had sent them away. Some think maybe for protection, but we're not given the reason why. He had sent them away. But now, Jethro is bringing Zipporah and the two sons of Moses back to Moses. And at the very beginning of our text, our attention is drawn to these two sons of Moses. They are given these specific names, and their names have meaning. Remember, in Hebrews, Exodus is entitled, The Names. So names are very important in Exodus. It's no different here. These two sons' names are important for us to remember. They stand as a testimony to the past, and they are to be an encouragement towards the future. The first is Gershom, whose name means foreigner or sojourner there. He was a reminder to Moses that he was a sojourner in a foreign land. He was to... Remember, each time he looked at Gershom or said Gershom's name, that Egypt was not his home. Egypt was not where he belonged. 
In fact, we're told this in Hebrews 11. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Think about that. All that was afforded to Moses there as he grew up in the house of Pharaoh, all the wealth and the privileges and the the honor. He said, I don't want any of that because I consider the reproach of Christ, it says in Hebrews, as greater wealth than all the riches that are afforded to me in the land of Egypt. Who would do such a thing as that? Who would say, I will give up all of that so long as I have the Lord, so long as I have Christ. Reproaches are of greater reward than all the gold, everything that would be afforded to him in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, we are sojourners and exiles in this world. This world is not our home. In fact, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you hear how Peter uses that language here? I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And because you are sojourners and exiles, you look different. You act different. Your life has a different purpose You abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war in your soul. And you keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that they may see your deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so, with the first son, we remember that Moses and the people of Israel were foreigners and sojourners. And likewise, we are foreigners and sojourners in this world. The name of the other son was Eliezer, which means the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Eliezer was a reminder that Moses worshipped the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And just as God helped them, so God would help him. And in fact, he had seen and experienced God's help firsthand in being delivered from the sword of Pharaoh. What a contrast. We remember Eliezer's name for confidence in the Lord being our help. And we remember Eliezer's name while Pharaoh's name is not remembered. It's long gone. Pharaoh is just a title. It's not his actual name. We don't know his name. But we do remember Eliezer's name. And so we remember God is our help. God is my help, the help of deliverance in particular. Jethro was bringing Moses' wife and these sons of testimony with him to Moses in the wilderness as they encamped at the mountain of God. And how different would this meeting be than the last meeting with the nations? We are told in Exodus 17.8 that, that Amalek came and fought. They came out and they attacked the Israelites. But now, in 18.6, Jethro is coming to Moses and Moses meets him and greets him and bows down and kisses him. A sign of respect, a sign of honor. This time when the Gentiles come, it's for peace and not for war. And so Moses brings them into his tent. He tells his father-in-law all that the Lord has done. And we see this repeated a few times in our text. 
verse 1. Follow along. Verse 1, all that the Lord had done, all that God had done. Verse 8, all that the Lord had done and how the Lord had delivered them. Again in verse 9, all the good that the Lord had done. Notice the emphasis. It all centers around what the Lord has done. It's about the action of the Lord. It's all about His control and His sovereignty. It's about the power and authority of the Lord. From beginning to end, it's about what the Lord has done. Not about what Moses had done. Not about what the people had done. Not about some lucky circumstances that just happened to turn out to be in the Israelites' favor. All this had happened because the Lord had planned it. The Lord so purposed it, the Lord orchestrated it, and then the Lord accomplished it. This is the testimony that gives God all the glory for the great things He has done. And so what has He done? Think about Exodus. He's heard the cries of His people. He called Moses into His service. He miraculously brought the ten strikes upon the nation of Israel. Ten strikes of judgment while he preserved his own people. The Lord had given them a Passover lamb to rescue the people from the destroyer who passed through the land and killed the firstborn. The Lord had brought the people out of Egypt as they plundered the Egyptians. The Lord led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Lord brought them to the place where they were trapped between a rock and a hard place with Pharaoh's army on one side and the Red Sea on the other. The Lord split the Red Sea, causing His people to walk through on dry ground. The Lord caused the walls of water to come crashing down in judgment upon the Egyptians. The Lord brought Israel to disappointment in Marah and healed the people while turning the bitter water into sweet water. The Lord brought Israel to hunger with no food, but then He provided manna daily for His people to satisfy them. The Lord brought Israel to thirst with no water at Massa and Meribah, where the people put the Lord to the test, but He brought water out of the rock. The Lord brought Amalek upon His own people to attack them, but the Lord prevailed over His enemies. And here is the testimony. Look, look at what the Lord has done. Look at all of his miraculous and supernatural actions. Look with wonder and with awe. Look at what the Lord has done, for he has done it all. And as Moses testifies, he testifies not only to the good times, but he testifies even to the hard times. You see that there. He told Jethro about the hardships which they had met on the way. Do we testify to the Lord of all that He has done and to His goodness in the hard times? Or do we minimize, ignore, downplay the hardships? Perhaps we don't want anyone to know how we've struggled. We don't want anyone to know how we've grumbled. We don't want anyone to know that the time in the wilderness has brought us to our wit's end and to our breaking point. In fact, what would you choose for your life? Would you ever choose hardships? Yes, Lord, give me some more hardships. I would like that. I haven't had enough. No, I want good times. I want blessings. But, dear brother and sister, Hardships are the way the Lord grows you and makes you depend more and more on Him. This is how you learn firsthand what you already know. Do you know that the Lord is good? Yes, I know it, but then as I go through these hardships and trials, He shows me that He's good. Do I know that he is faithful? Yes, but then he walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death. The hardships is the way 
that the Lord continues to grow us so that we know Him and so that we draw near to Him and so that we depend upon Him and on Him alone. If you don't have the hardships, you don't get all of God. How do we think about our hardships? And Moses said to Jethro, let me tell you about all the hardships that we met on the way. Dear brother and sister, do you look at people here as we come together and do you say, let me tell you about all the hardships that I've met on the way? Maybe this week you're experiencing hardships. Let me tell you about the hardships that we've met, that I've met. But be encouraged. God is there, He is dependable. He will provide. He will care. And He has cared for me. Don't be shy. Do not think that you are alone. We all have met the hardships on the way. We all have cried out, How long, O Lord? There's no need for us to pretend. Because that's how the Lord has grown us. That's how the Lord is growing us. That's how we can go on. It hasn't been an easy march through the wilderness. It's been a time of testing and trials. We have not been perfect. At times we have sinned. But God is faithful to deliver us. And what happened when all of this good news landed upon the ears of Jethro? What happened? What was his response? He rejoiced. He had to rejoice. He could do nothing less than rejoice. It says he rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. All the hardships that they met on the way. Look at all the good the Lord has done for you. Let us rejoice together in this. And it makes me think as I read this, shouldn't the Israelites likewise be rejoicing? Shouldn't Moses likewise be rejoicing? Shouldn't we likewise be rejoicing? For our deliverance is even more spectacular and more miraculous than Israel's deliverance from Egypt. If you think being enslaved to Egypt is bad, torturous, and evil, we were enslaved to sin and death. Which is a worse taskmaster, Pharaoh or our own sin and death? Which is a worse prospect, living in Egypt until you die or dying and then only knowing that you are to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might? For however awful Israel's enslavement to Egypt was, it only pointed to a greater reality, a more greater truth, a more spiritual reality that we need deliverance from Christ or, with, or we need Christ's deliverance. We need Him to deliver us from our trespasses and our sin. If Jethro rejoiced at the deliverance of Israel, how much more should we rejoice in the truth that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. I'll tell you how much we should rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Jethro However, did not stop at rejoicing. He went on to bless the Lord. He takes the personal revealed name of the Lord, Yahweh, upon his own lips to bless him. We see this here, don't we, in these verses? How Pharaoh said, blessed be the Lord. Who has delivered us. Who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10. 
In fact, we should follow this example, I think. This is the example that even the psalmists lead us into. Psalm 103, 1 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are the benefits that are afforded to you in the Lord? What benefits do you know in your life? Here they are. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the the eagles. There it is, endurance. Do you ever talk to yourself? What do you say when you talk to yourself? The Christian life is a life of talking to yourself, and that's not crazy. It's a good thing. Because the difficulty that we have is that often we are so occupied with listening to ourselves. Stop listening to yourself and talk to yourself. Did you hear it with the psalmist? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Soul, if there's one thing that you are going to do, you're going to do this. Bless the Lord. And here's why you're going to bless him, because of all that he has done, all of his benefits. And what a declaration then that Jethro gives in verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. All that the Lord had done in Egypt was so Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know that the Lord, he is God. And now this is the confession that's on the lips of Jethro. Jethro gets it. He knows that there is no God who is like the Lord our God seated upon the throne. His rule and his sovereignty reign supreme. Who are these other little gods who would act so arrogantly to think that they could overthrow the Lord? They are nothing. They have no power, no authority, no chance to overthrow our Lord. And what is happening here? The Gentiles are beginning to worship the Lord. Jethro has had his eyes open to the truth of Yahweh and has come to embrace Yahweh for himself. Jethro responds by rejoicing with confession and with worship. Notice he brings burnt offerings and sacrifices to God. This is what Moses had told Pharaoh in Exodus 10.25, that the Israelites wanted to go into the wilderness to, to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. What's interesting, however, is that it's never recorded that they've done this since they've come out of Egypt. And now it takes a Gentile to come among the people before the Lord to worship the Lord the way that they were meant to worship the Lord? In fact, if you were to read through God's Word, the last time we read about burnt offerings being given to the Lord was back in Genesis 22. Do you remember that event? Abraham took his one and only son, the son whom he loved, up on Mount Moriah, and he was to sacrifice him there to the Lord. And as they built the altar, and as Abraham laid his son Isaac on the altar, was about to strike his son dead, the Lord said, wait, stop! Now I know, Abraham, that you will obey me. And the Lord provided a ram who was caught in the thicket. And so they offered this ram as a burnt offering to the Lord in the place of Abraham's son. The last time we read about sacrifice was in Exodus 12 with the Passover lamb. When when, uh, Yahweh brought his people out of the land of Egypt. And now what's interesting, Jethro now offers these burnt offerings and these sacrifices to the Lord in worship. The good news of the Lord is being proclaimed 
in the world, and this Gentile not only gets it, he accepts it, and he responds to it. This is God's program for the world. He desires and has so planned to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. His gospel has the power to save all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. God has promised through Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The nations will flow to the mountain of the Lord. The Lord will gather people from all nations and tongues so that they will see his glory. And Jethro is a testimony to the Lord's saving work that he will do in the world. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, say this from the lips of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of whom? Of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jethro comes and offers these burnt offerings and sacrifices as worship to God. And then what happens? And then they eat a meal. They eat a meal. This is truly significant. Aaron and the elders of Israel and Jethro and most likely Moses eat together. And what does it say? They're in the presence of God. Before God, they are coming together and they are eating this meal. It is right here that we see God's grace given to us so that we might endure First, notice that this is Jew and Gentile eating together. This is not supposed to happen. They are supposed to separate. They are supposed to keep their distance. Such intimacy and closeness that happened in a meal was not supposed to happen between Jew and Gentile. But here, now they are eating together to show that they are no longer against each other. They are no longer fighting each other. This isn't like the Amalekites who wanted to kill them, here is a Gentile. That's one of them. And when you eat a meal together, you come to a place of vulnerability. A place where you have to lay down all of your weapons. A place where you have to let down your guard. A place where you no longer have to protect yourself. Isn't this what we read in Psalm 23, 5? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I've been put in this place of vulnerability my enemies might be all around me, but here I am eating this meal, and you protect me, O oh Lord. You take care of me. And I come to this meal, and I don't have to protect myself anymore. I don't have to keep my walls up. All of the walls come down, and I come together, and I eat this meal with my brothers and my sisters. And so here was this intimacy, this closeness that was happening between Jethro and these Israelites. And here at this meal we find peace and unity. Through a sacrifice and a meal, Jew and Gentile are brought together. The nations are invited to this meal, invited into the very presence of God. And oh, dear brother and sister, how the Lord has given us something that lasts, as is, as is evidenced in these verses. For the meal continues, and God's presence continues. The meal endures, and God's presence endures, and it is these that he gives to you so that you might endure. And notice the sequence here. It's important. A sacrifice and then a meal. And now a greater sacrifice. The sacrifice of God's own son who was offered up in our place as our substitute. The sacrifice of the final Passover lamb whose blood shields us from the wrath and judgment of God and saves us. It is the blood of Jesus now that covers us and forgives us and gives us the very righteousness of God so that we are able to come into his presence. And it is this sacrifice that we continue to commemorate with a meal 
when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. A sacrifice and then a meal. A sacrifice that endures as a means to our salvation. A meal that endures commemorating that sacrifice of our Savior so that we continue to proclaim His death and what He has done to deliver His people until the time when He comes again. The very presence of God endures as those who now receive Christ also then possess the indwelling of God's Spirit. And so as we now even meet together, we can say God's presence is among us. And yet we are diverse. Many different backgrounds, many different origins. Whatever differences there might be among us, none of these divide us because we are Christ's. He is our head and we are His one body. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In what John read today, it says that the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. There is no more hostility because we are one new man in Jesus Christ. We are one body. We are together. We are unified in Him. There is no more hostility. There is no more fighting. We have laid down all of our weapons. Anything that we would take out to draw against one another is no longer there. We can be in this place of vulnerability. We can be in this place where we have let down our guard because we are Christ's. We don't need constant miracles to ensure that we endure, we need a constant meal. And this repeating meal points us forward to an eternal banquet in the presence of God to which all of the nations are invited. And we see this feast in Isaiah 25. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. So there it is. Who? Everybody. All peoples. All nations. There at the mountain of the Lord, what happens? A feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. This is the best feast, the best banquet imaginable. And then what? Verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. There it is. The darkness does not seem like it will lift. There is a veil that covers everyone. What is this that is to be swallowed up? What is this that is to be removed? What is it that we hold on to when we're saying, How long, O oh Lord, I don't know if I can go on anymore? He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the feast, the banquet that we look forward to when we eat the Lord's Supper. This eternal banquet this marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, it says this in the book of Revelation, that one day, the husband, our husband, Jesus Christ, will be there in glory, and we will eat this banquet with him as those clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. And it says there in Revelation, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Have you been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you embraced him and put your faith in him? Have you repented of your sin and turned to him? 
Look with me for a moment at Luke 14. Luke 14, and then we're going to participate in this feast together of the Lord's Supper. But let's look here for a moment. Luke 14, verses 12 through 24. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the, his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Here is this banquet, and people are invited, and they're making excuses. All the reasons why they can't come, all the reasons why they're preoccupied. And so the master says, go out and find the blind and the lame and the poor and bring them in. And they say, that's been done. <laughs> then find the people from the hedges and the highways. Compel them to come in that the house may be filled. Let us not be those who make the excuses for why we can't come. In fact, this is what Jesus is saying to these people who thought that they were in, who thought that they would eat the banquet. He said, if you make these excuses when you are invited and don't come, you will not partake of the banquet. invitation is going out for you today. Come to the banquet. Come to the banquet of Christ. Come to the feast that is better than any other feast. A feast where we proclaim the Lord's death. Remember what he has done through his body and through his blood. A feast where we remember the one who gave himself for us so that we could have life. A feast that is a reminder to us that we are those who are dying to live. And even as we hold the bread and the cup in our hands, we remember Christ and we remember that this is the life that he has called us to. A life that's willing to count the cost. A life that's willing to say, my love for Jesus Christ is greater than any other love that I might know in this world. In fact, that's what Jesus goes on to say. 1425 of Luke, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, what? Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
What is he saying? Your love for Christ, your desire for Christ is to be greater than any other love or any other desire that you could ever imagine even among your relationships here on earth. Your relationship and your love of Christ takes priority over everything else. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so we are those who are taking up our cross, denying ourselves and saying we will follow Christ wherever he leads because we know that as we follow him, we know God's grace. And so then we will have the ability to endure. Do you take this cup in your hand this morning? If you need one, if you didn't get one on the way in, one of our deacons, Craig Baker, there in the back, just raise your hand. Let him know that you need one. He will get one to you. You might be thinking this morning, wait, it's not the first of the month yet. We usually celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month, but we're doing things a little bit differently this week. We'll still have it on the first, first month of February. But I thought it'd be good for us to, again, remember and feast together so that we might continue to endure together. As those who link arms hand, hand in hand, saying we can't endure. By God's grace, we can and will endure. Look at all the Lord has done. We will rejoice. We will bless the Lord with all that we are. We will hold fast to our confession of faith. We will focus on the sacrifice of Christ and we will eat a meal together in the presence of God. This meal is for those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you know him as your Lord and Savior, you've been scripturally baptized, we invite you to this table to eat with us this morning. If you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, we would just ask that you would refrain from partaking at this time and meditate, think upon what has been said from God's word this morning. That you might see Jesus Christ as your greatest love, that you might desire to follow him. You might see your own sin and say, I want to turn from my sin and follow Christ. You don't know him yet, though, this morning. We ask that you would refrain. And brothers and sisters, as we hold this bread and this cup in our hands, may we remember our Savior, be satisfied in our Savior. Proclaim his death and say, we will endure. You take a moment, meditate on the bread, the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. playing the piano. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Take a moment to meditate on the cup, the blood of Christ.
How precious is the flow that makes us white as snow, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Again, from 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Father, we remember the sacrifice of our Savior. And as we come to eat this meal together as one body, as your people, we seek to proclaim Christ's death, looking for that day when he will return and come again to take us unto himself. Until that day, remind us that we can endure and that we will endure by your grace as you continue to grow us. We pray in Jesus' name.